we, what's our take? How do we want to do ritual? How do we want to tell stories? What stories do we want to tell? Who do we need to talk about? Who do we need to reimagine back into the story? Whose names do we need to elevate and honor? What do we do about it now if that's not the only version of the tradition that we want? And how do we surface and celebrate the stories of women? Welcome to Purple Honey, a gathering of female voices where we explore how Jewish wisdom and feminine spirituality can bring sweetness to our everyday lives. I am your host, Jody Bayless. So entering Hanukkah, the Hanukkah season this time around the sun, two questions emerge for me. One, how can I connect more deeply to Hanukkah? My own Hanukkah practice and celebration had remained pretty much the same since I was about 11, and I wanted to evolve my connection to Hanukkah and discover new connections based on what resonated with me right now. A connection to nature, connecting to the seasons, connecting with other women, connecting to the moon. My second inquiry, where are the women in the Hanukkah story? So over the course of two episodes, I talk with four different amazing Jewish women. And in our first episode, we explore the ritual of candles and search deeply into the story of Judith, a Hanukkah-related story I had never heard of in my entire life. I'm talking with two women rabbis in this episode. First, Rabbi Jessica Lott who is Assistant Vice President at Hillel International, whereby Jessica develops programming for young adults, focusing on wellness and living out your Judaism from a place of the whole person. And my second guest on this episode is Rabbi Sarah Tasman, who's founder and CEO at the Tasman Center for Jewish Creativity. We talk with Sarah Tasman in just a moment, but first, I talk with Rabbi Jessica about her connection to Hanukkah memories. What was it about Hanukkah that you loved while you were growing up? And how has that maybe evolved over the years into your adulthood and, and motherhood and, and, and life as it is now? Mm, that's such a great question. So I always really loved Hanukkah. And I think actually my favorite thing was always lighting the candles and singing the songs. And there's something so visceral and sensory about that, right? I have like all of these sensory memories of my family around Hanukkah. And we used to, even though it's actually a tradition to um, put the candles in the window, in our Mm. family, we always, we put them on the mantle, like over the fireplace. And so we would like have this row of Hanukkiot, right? Of the Hanukkah menorah. And um, there would be like, latke smell permeating the entire house because we had just cooked (laughs) latkes and you know we would like take our greasy fingers and put our little waxy candles in um and light them and have the and then we'd sing and have Hanukkah gelt and there's just all these I feel like there's this perception that Hanukkah is all about the gifts and for me that was always like nice but not the point like the joke was that um, we always had to make a list of like what we wanted for Hanukkah. And one year I put that I wanted seven pairs of socks, <laughs> which is like then became a joke. And every year I would then put it on my Hanukkah list. Um, and, I, <laughs> and I don't know why I wanted seven pairs of socks, but it was like that. I feel like that for me now in retrospect encapsulates that it was like never like about big elaborate gift giving. And it was always about this like light and song and family. Um, Mm. And that's something that we've really retained. Next, I talk with Rabbi Sarah Tasman, who is founder and CEO of the Tasman Center for Jewish Creativity. Rabbi Sarah is a spiritual leader, coach, teacher, and mentor to other Jewish spiritual leaders. And she works one-on-one and in groups to help others connect to their Judaism in ways that are personal and meaningful. For me, growing up, Uh, Hanukkah was just a really special time 
to be with my family. I have memories of my grandparents coming to visit. I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, and my parent, my grandparents came from Louisville, Kentucky. So it felt like really special that they came to have Hanukkah with us. And I remember um, one of my favorite things was to make our own Hanukkah menorah. This was like a DIY Sunday school <laughs> project with the wood and the nuts and bolts. Um, and then we could paint it. But I remember, um, you know, my older sibling made a menorah out of clay, and so we had all these different Hanukkah menorahs, and we had like a old one that was, you know, somebody's grandparent or passed down, and ones that we made in Sunday school, and so every person had their own menorah that they lit, and that was just really special me now when I just light one menorah with my husband I'm Mm -hmm. like where's all the other ones I Mm want to light all of them Um, and that was just really a special time and you know like many many families you know we would um, we would make potato latkes and play dreidel and have presents and open the presents and that was really what I think of kind of like a typical Mm -hmm. Hanukkah way to celebrate Hanukkah and I mean but it was special that we did it you know literally eight nights in a row every night with family you know what what you're saying about all these you know food traditions and gift giving traditions what you know kind of segueing into the actual story is what's interesting or one of my questions about Hanukkah as compared to other holidays is it doesn't feel like there's quite a prescription aside from the candlelighting part, unless I'm wrong about this, of like how to manifest this in our lives. There's not so many rules compared to other holidays. So there are not as many rules around Hanukkah, and that's partially because it's not a biblical holiday. So holidays like Passover, Sukkot, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, like those are all in the Torah. And Hanukkah's not. Um, And then similarly, I think because those holidays are sort of more elevated because they're mentioned in the Torah and they have these more ancient roots, um, there are the biblical traditions around them. And then the rabbis of the Mishnah in like the second um, century wrote out all of the rules of how do we Mm -hmm. how do we live out all of these rituals? And actually some of the customs, like if you go and read the Mishnah about Sukkot, that's what we do for Sukkot. Like, it hasn't really changed that much in the last 2,000 years. But because the, the book of Maccabees, there's actually two books of Maccabees, were not canonized as part of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, what we know is actually these about how we ritualized it, and those were sort of the historical stories, um, comes from, like, little pieces in the Mishnah, and then is mm. all um, custom. So there's two different ways that we sort of celebrate and ritualize in Jewish tradition. One is halacha, which is the Jewish law, and the other is minhag, which is local custom, like your family or local or communal custom. And mm. the there's not a lot of halacha, there's not a lot of law around Hanukkah because mm. it's not... Um, it's actually it's not at the same level as these other holidays so uh, like uh, the whole story the historical story of the destruction and rededication of the temple comes from the books of maccabees and then Mm -hmm. later this story of kindling light comes from the mishnah from the rabbis like reflecting and it's there's like three lines in the Mishnah where they say, what's Hanukkah? And they do this couple sentence explanation of, um, it's actually different from the historical story (laughs) about Mm -hmm. um, the miracle of the oil and lighting candles. And then all of the, there's interpretations afterwards about the rabbis actually have a debate about whether we should treat lighting Hanukkah candles like a mitzvah or not. Because mitzvah, a lot of people think means like a good deed. It actually literally means a commandment. And officially, a mitzvah is something that's a commandment from the Torah. So there are no mitzvot about Hanukkah. Mm. 
the rabbis later decide that there are some things that you should treat like a mitzvah. <laughs> and uh -huh. Hanukkah, lighting Hanukkah candles becomes one of those things. Huh. Okay. But all the other stuff is minhag. It's all custom. And, so it's um, custom heavy. Okay. Yeah. And so that's why there's like also like a lot of, there's the whole, there's a famous debate between Hillel and Shammai, these two major rabbis in the Mishnah, about when you're lighting the Hanukkah candles, whether you should start with eight and count down to one, or whether you should start with one and grow up to eight. And it's actually this, it's a beautiful story about sort of this difference. And they actually end up siding with the, with Hillel, who says we should grow in light because we want to be adding more and more light, not diminishing our light. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we start with one candle and then add a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh and an eighth. Um, but it's actually this great example of how they hadn't figured out how to celebrate Hanukkah yet at that time. Mm -hmm. And they were sort of actively creating the ritual and debating what the appropriate ritual would be. Um, as opposed, you know, and there's this little bit like, okay, we know we're supposed to, we know we're going to light candles. How do we do it? And one of the ways that I love to interact with Jewish tradition is to say like, we're allowed to ask that same question too, right? Like, okay, baseline light some candles <laughs> light eight candles yeah. um yeah what's the best way to do that that's going to bring us the most meaning and that's actually that i love that that was their question and that was sort of what one was this would feel the most symbolically meaningful <laughs> yeah because that's not yeah. how all jewish rituals um and laws and whatever are created there's an interesting byproduct of deciding that it was a mitzvah that I wanted to share, especially with you in this setting, which is that, um, you know, lighting candles, again, this is custom, is like um, traditionally a woman's job, right? Like women light candles on mm. Shabbat. You don't have to, like the but um, it's sort of a lot of the stuff around lighting candles and making the space uh, warm and beautiful are perceived as the, a woman's role. And when the rabbis make lighting Hanukkah candles into an obligation, they then ask if women are still obligated. Hmm. Like now that it becomes everyone's job to light candles, there's a question of if women really have to do it. And in a somewhat exceptional move, the rabbis are like, yes, women are obligated too. And like everyone is sort of put on equal footing in terms of like everyone's supposed to light candles um and that's why many families have that everyone has their own Hanukkah because everyone has the obligation to light candles it's something that we all own I love yeah. that that is um, such an un it's that's so um I'm so pleasantly surprised to hear that because it really does bring in I what I love is that yeah women lighting candles that is uh uh that is has been a role and bringing in others to that it just feels like i don't know it feels it, it just feels like um the space f of women and others are joining in and something feels different about that to me yes and it's interesting because what the what they actually say in the in the Talmud is, you know, one rabbi's like, well, a woman, you know, they certainly might may light. And then another rabbi says, like, no, women are obligated to light because they were included in the miracle too. Hmm. Hmm. And that's sort of he has the final word there. Wow. Which I love, which is like, and it's this beautiful exception <laughs> where the, one of the, the rabbis, one of the great rabbis of the Talmud is really like, no, 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 no. <clears throat> Women are a part of this, a, an important part of this. There's something that feels so relevant, especially now of just some that, you know, I, I'm not too, I'm not so steeped yet around all these conversations the rabbis had so long ago, but just, it mm -hmm. feels very significant for a rabbi to vocalize and stand up for 
that that women are are part of this that that it feels that feels significant so what i learned when talking with rabbi sarah was that there is a woman specific rule that women are not supposed to work while the hanukkah candles are burning and she really opens this up for us in new ways turning this obligation into an invitation to reflect and to rest and to get in touch with our creativity in what Rabbi Sarah calls a Hanukkah dedication challenge. So a side note, you might hear some noise in the background. And what happened was my daughter was with us. It was a snow day and she was playing math games on the iPad. As you, uh, on your website, you Mm -hmm. lay out Mm -hmm. this Hanukkah dedication challenge. Uh, in such a beautiful way and this idea of and you list recommendations or suggestions of how you could spend that time and just in you know I um, in, in looking down just a quick skim it felt so good to be like and because you said you know if you have kids like 20 minutes try 10 yeah um, just try what you can it just felt good to assign a time that's just yours yeah and that the candles can connect to that Absolutely. Something freeing. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I came up with that was um, I wanted to kind of like reclaim or re-harness this Jewish law, this this law of Hanukkah about women um, not being supposed to work while the Hanukkahs are, the Hanukkah candles are burning. And um, that's not a law that I feel bound to and yet it felt like an invitation yes to take advantage like to almost take advantage of like I'm not supposed to be working while this the candles are burning so let me use this time um for something sacred and 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 personal I want to bridge because we're we're talking about the woman role of this yes where do the women's stories come from within the Hanukkah story? So again, it's so interesting because the book of Maccabees, the book of Judith, um, they're all, they were all um, not included when the rabbis decided what was going to be counted as Bible. I'll tell a little, a short version of the story of Judith. I will say I went and reread it before our conversation and I had never read the whole thing, actually. I mean, I'd read parts of it, and I'd read, like, this is the story of Judith, and I, like, actually sat down and read the book of Judith. And my little Oxford Study Bible actually says at the beginning, there's, like, a little paragraph introducing it, and it calls it um, narrative art. That, like, the book of Judith is an example of narrative art because it has all of these, like, this beautiful language and detailed imagery and it's kind of an amazing story. And um, it's mm-hmm. all about when it actually takes place after Hanukkah, right after Hanukkah. So okay. the temple had been destroyed. Some folks come back to rededicate the temple, which is that's what Hanukkah means, rededication. Um, and then they like set up shop in Jerusalem and in the Judean hills around Jerusalem, the Jewish people sort of started moving back in. Um, and that's when the story of Judith takes place, is that actually um, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the emperor of the Assyrian Empire, um, is trying to reclaim all of this land. And his um, commander-in-chief... Uh, whose name is Holofernes, which is a great name, um, Mm. gets to the land of, like, he gets to the land of the Hebrews and says to one of his guys, okay, like, what's the deal with these people? (laughs) Like, tell me the story of the Hebrews before I go um, conquer them. One of the sort of local experts on the Hebrews, right? An Assyrian local expert on the Hebrews um, says, oh, they believe really deeply in this God. And um, if they're being bad Jews, they're totally vulnerable and their God is going to allow you to destroy them. And if they're being good Jews and following all the commandments, 
they're totally undefeatable and you shouldn't even try. So Judith is this woman who is a widow, um, who was like gorgeous, but had herself covered in sackcloth and ashes because her husband had died and she never, she didn't remarry. People who are actually in charge of the community, these, this group of men who are in charge say, we're going to surrender our Halifornies is unbeatable. And Judith is like, hold the phone. We are doing everything right. We are following all the laws. God is on our side, right? We are currently in unbeatable mode because we're doing all the right things. We've been fasting. We've been praying. We've been following all the rules. There's no way they're going to be able to beat us. Let me use my wily ways. I'm going to fix, I'm going to get them to go away and leave us Mm. alone. And she actually like casts off her widowness. I feel like this would make a great movie. It's like, she like, it's like the rom-com where she transforms into this like, Uh it's like, it says she like puts like, covers herself in like wonderful perfumes and puts on her most glamorous dress and does her hair really fancy. And she like marches out to, and like, to the camp, the Assyrians. And um, she like works her way into being in Holofernes tent, like using, she like leverages the, what she understands about the basis instincts of men to be able to access the highest levels of power and then manipulate them to her advantage. So it's so interesting. It's like, she totally uses like, it says like all the men were just like floored and they just like made way for her. And like, she knew Mm. this would happen. So she like felt confident that she could do it. And, um, she, she basically, she lies and she's like, I'm leaving the Jewish people. I came to you because I'm leaving because they're, um, going astray and I can't be a part of them anymore. And you should know that they're weak Mm. and whatever. And so, um, and she, they get, gets to the point, it's a long story. I, this is probably not as short of a version as I intended to tell. She gets into, and Holofernes, she's staying there for like three days. And finally Holofernes is like, I have to have sex with this woman. Like, she's amazing. I'm in love with her. You know, in biblical language, he says that. And he hosts a banquet and slowly like makes everyone else leave. And she totally knows what's going on. And he Uh gets like raging drunk, like totally wasted. He gets totally wasted. And then she's like, let's go into your tent. And so everyone leaves and it's just the two of them. And he passes out drunk. And she slices off his head with his own sword. What? (laughs) So it's like, wow. And everyone else, everyone in the camp is assuming that they're in there having sex and that he's in power. And actually, she is totally in control of the situation. She has manipulated, she has created a situation in which he is totally powerless and she is powerful and she slices off his head and puts it in a bag. And then she and her little maidens like run back to um, the Hebrews and are like, she's like, hey, people. I'm back. I have the head of Holofernes, the commander of chief, in a bag. And I didn't even let him have sex with me. (laughs) She's like, and that's what she's like. And I was not defiled. And everyone's like, woo. And they all, and then like, and then what happens is everyone is like, oh my gosh, the Jewish people are amazing. And the guy who had been, the guy who had told Holofernes, the scoop on the Jews is like, oh my gosh, you Jews and your God are amazing. And he converts to Judaism on the spot. Whoa. We wowed them so much. But what's crazy is there's no other story that we have like this. That's like, we wowed them so much because we had this amazing, smart woman who like used this man's own sexism and sex obsessed power and like that was actually his weakness. And wow. it says like the end of the story is like, and she was celebrated as a hero for all time. And she got to live in Holofernes tent. Like they, they took over the camp and like all this stuff. And like, she got, was like this celebrated hero for the rest of her life. 
And the way the rabbis usually tell the story is it's like Judith is, is wonderful because she was so dedicated to God. Because the whole time she's like praying, she like tells God what she's going to do and she like asks for permission. But it's like, that's, that's not the most important part of the story to me. <laughs> yeah. But like, that's always the biblical and rabbinic take on why someone is wonderful is because they're so dedicated to God and to Jewish law. Right. Um, but we have a different version of understanding like why she was amazing from right. where we sit today. Right. Right. And that's, and, and that's, as that's women, our space. Right? Like as men, I don't think that the rabbis would be like, Judith is awesome because she used our basic instincts against us. <laughs> right. Um, right. They were like, oh, this was like, she was really dedicated to God. They often, the rabbis mm. often use like metaphors or stories around sex and power um, in really interesting ways that, you know, many historians who want to take a psychological look at Jewish history at, or at, our, at a rabbinic and biblical history say is like about how, how disempowered they felt that like mm-hmm. they compare themselves to women and like the Jewish people to being um, victims of sexual violence as a way of conveying how disempowered they felt. Mm. And there's something like so sad about that. And there's also something kind of amazing about like, there's like this, like a bizarre empathy there that they're like, we get that women are disempowered. We're not going to try to fix that. But that they could even, you know, but like that was sort of a a lot of the metaphors and stories. um, That's sort of the take is that the rabbis um, use those stories as a way to convey how disempowered they felt. So it's like the rabbis are inserting a piece of their psyche using just like any author would essentially. Right. Um using the metaphor and the characters to to convey those their inner world and that's so interesting and and here we are sitting as women hearing two really uh, strong and i'm having some like strong visceral reactions to hearing their stories and and we can we can open it up uh beyond the the what you know the the rabbi's use of this story as a vessel you know i'm i'm sitting here you know feeling the the vulnerability and physical violation and just like how vulnerable that makes you feel and then what comes up from that that's just a whole Mm -hmm. different piece and and then and um and that there's um uh you know combined with power and actually um leading to like a a victory in a sense at least in, in in judith's story yes The question remains, how do we talk about these things now? How do we talk about these women's stories, these important women's stories now, and how can we um, put ourselves into them? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've cited and we've touched upon many places just where can we insert, you know, insert self here, insert Jewish women, (laughs) communities of Jewish women here. Um, And so gratitude feels like such an open place to to maybe tell those stories from. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious too, just in you know the, the Hannah story, we have a bit of a retelling in another conversation and, and some also kind of some graphic violence included in that mm-hmm. and sadly. Um, so I hear so I hear you really connecting to Judith through this um, Hanukkah dedication. Like it all seems to really connect Mm -hmm. as a way of bringing it forward today. Um, Just curious if there's any other pieces of those women's stories where um, you find some connection and practice from. Absolutely. Um, I feel like that could be its own, I mean, that could be a whole beautiful conversation as well. Um, Just in terms of 
um, sort of like practically how we can lift up these stories of these women. One way is, as we were talking before, through Rosh Chodesh celebration or through a Rosh Chodesh circles, bringing these stories to um, to teach and learn about um, in a circle with women and female identified um, community, just lifting those stories up. Um, another way is teaching our children about those stories, mm-hmm. um, just as we would teach them about the Maccabees and the Hanukkah story. Um, there's a wonderful Sephardic Jewish tradition. There's an amazing ritual that I learned about from Rabbi Jill Hammer called Chag Habanot, which is a Sephardic ritual, um, which means festival of the daughters. And um, this was something that would happen in Sephardic communities where they would really celebrate the daughters and the women in the community. And the ritual that Jill Hammer created is one where each night of lighting the Hanukkah candles is actually an opportunity, an invitation to, um, to dedicate each one um, to different women. So one night might be dedicating the candle lighting to um, strong Jewish women from our tradition and speaking those names aloud and telling the stories of those women while the Hanukkah candles are burning. Another night might be lifting up and naming the powerful Jewish women um, throughout modern history. Another night might be naming the women um, who've been our teachers or strong women in our families. Um, Another night might be naming the women who aren't Jewish but who have really impacted us as well. Um, And so that's another way of sort of bringing these stories, speaking these stories of these women um, and sharing them with our families. And maybe even if you don't have a daughter, um, you know, sharing those names of those those powerful women with whoever you're lighting candles with. Mm-hmm. Or if you're lighting candles by yourself, taking the opportunity to journal or reflect mm-hmm. on those women each night um, and dedicating your candle lighting to them in that kind of more internal, personal way. Taking it kind of through to your work um, with, with Hillel International in, in working with, with um, you know, in working in the area around wellness and students mm-hmm. and the whole person is there something from this story that you feel that you would want to you know bring forth for a student in their early 20s or you know 18 19 20 uh, is there something that feels like that would be resonant for for young adults today that we could take for young women Yeah, it's interesting. I'm so cautious about, like, I'm still figuring out how I feel about using Judith as an example. And what I would probably do if I were sitting down, especially with a group of young women, is say, let's dissect how Judith uses her sexuality um, Mm. and her femininity and her womanhood, right? And um, all of that. And, like, what's... What do you notice about how she, she in her historical contexts, <laughs> wields her power as a woman? Like, what power does she have and how does she use it? And then to ask them, what power do you have and how do you use it and how do you feel about it? Mm-hmm. That that's actually the question. I think sometimes when we see a woman today... um using her sexuality as her power, we have really conflicted reactions to that. Rightfully so. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I usually find is if you allow people to find a link between themselves and their behavior and the people in the stories of our tradition and their behavior... And you remind them that we actually live in different different societal contexts. Um, mm. And then ask, okay, like, who are you and what's your context and how are you living out your womanhood? Like, that's mm-hmm. why we have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
because in Judith's context, this was the only type of power she had. Right. And that's not the case anymore. So it becomes more nuanced and more complicated for us to unpack when it's the kind of power we use. Right. And that's the kind of thing I think it would, you know, it very much depends sort of who we're talking to and what the, what the context is. Um, But I think that's actually a super important conversation and that we're, we're trying to have. um, And, you know, I would want to poke holes in this. Is Judith right about what she assumes about men? Is that still true? Is that not true? Um, (laughs) Is, um, you know, in her context, from the perspective of the author, who was probably a man, Mm-hmm. Um, he believed that's, that's it. That's how men are. Um, but I can say right. right now we're, we're having conversations about, um, how do we teach men about sexual violence and about masculinity in positive ways? Um, mm-hmm. and also that's something we don't yet offer that course, but we're, it's in development. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and then also, um, how do we talk to women in a way that doesn't assume they're going to be victims um, and doesn't put all of the onus on preventing sexual violence on female college students? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. tends to be um, one of the ways that a lot of folks go about it is like, this is what you need to do to protect yourself. Um, right. And we're trying to right. make sure that there's like that, that we're talking about both angles that like, this is what we need to do to end rape culture. This is what we need to teach everyone regardless of sex and gender about consent. At this point, we switch gears from talking about the power of the story of Judith to talking about the powerful meaning of her name. And I think it's fascinating. I'll say, cause also like think about how many people, you know, named Judith and named Hannah mm-hmm. who probably do not know these stories. Mm. Like they do not know the stories of their namesakes. All of the Sarah's, Rebecca's and Rachel's and Leah's know the stories of their namesakes. Yeah. But like my mom is a Judy and I don't know if she knows this story really. Yeah. And I know a gajillion Hannah's and we don't know. They might be named for the other Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because there are multiple Hannahs, but there's Mm -hmm. really only one Judith. And, Mm -hmm. oh, I can't, we can't end without also me saying this, which is that Judith hides what, like saying Judith in English hides her name, which her name is Yehudit, Mm -hmm. which actually just means Jewish woman. Wow. Like I didn't Yehudi, actually... right? Yehudi means Jew. And Yehudit ju- means Jewess. I mean, so I'm like, having this, I'm she having this is all of us. moment. Right? Yes. Yes. She, Jewish woman. Like, that's just what her name means. And I, I, I feel very... I mean, she is like a container for all of us. And I feel to what you were saying about um, how do we tell these stories, I feel so confident that we are going to evolve into our story. But just by having mm-hmm. conversations like this, writing blog posts, whatever whatever <laughs> it takes, having women's circles, um, that story, I, I it really feels like it's going to be written and to the, what I'm learning about Rosh Chodesh being a women's holiday, yet there's not that many laws around it to what I'm understanding. Same, same. I feel like, yep. I feel like Hanukkah is also that playground because, you know, it's like the applesauce sour cream. You know, this is, if this is a, if this is a holiday around, um, uh, that's less rooted in, in um, law, as we were saying and talking about at the beginning and more rooted in custom, this is like where we can insert that language and make that story grow 
our story, totally. the Jewish yes. woman's story. The name Yehudit literally means Jewish woman. Or I, Jewish, get, I get chills Jewish each time. Female, <laughs> Jewish female. Yeah. Um, you might have heard the name Yehuda or Judah. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the masculine version of that name. Um, and what I love about the name Yehudit is that it's also connected with um, the word Yehudim, which is a name for the Jewish people. One of the names for the Jewish people is Yehudim, Jews, Yehudim. And the root of that word is gratitude. Oh, It's the same root as the word todah, you know, in the phrase todah rabah, which means thank you, or the prayer that we say upon waking in the morning, moda'ani, thank you, God, for restoring my soul to me so that I could wake up in the morning. All those words, todah, moda, are connected to that word to Yehuda to Yehuda it's the same root so the, the pieces here Yehudit Jewish woman which alone feels like an invitation to just step into her yes and then seeing concentric circles here that yes. there's also the Yehuda yes which is you know um, enveloped in or yes. from gratitude yeah. And as you said, um, her name is an invitation to us to kind of step into our own power. And it's also an opportunity to like do that from a place of gratitude and a place of honor um, to her, but also to other strong Jewish women who've come before us and the women who've supported us and helped raise us up to where we are now and gratitude to ourselves for our own strength. And another piece of... of- you know the story and opening up Judith and our own lives, exploring our bo- power, our bodies, mm-hmm. sex, consent. Um, or I don't know if Judith had this resource as well, but we have. I feel like we have the resource of each other now in terms of yes. we can talk about this. We, um, I, you know, and if I were to sit down and and think about these things for myself, I think, I think what would be most helpful for me is to have a group of other women to hear what their stories and experiences are so that I could sort of grow my own feelings around this um, as well. Um, it just I feels love that like- so much, Jody. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. That's one of the other things that, um, you know, in that time they lived in pretty gender segregated societies. And that's why it's kind of radical that the rabbis in the Mishnah, right, were and the Talmud were like, whoop, Women were part of the miracle too. This was everyone. Um, but that yeah. also, you know, and Judith actually, I, lo- I love that. This was a totally different, a new lens. Um, because she was a widow, she just lived in her home with her female right. servants. Like she right. lived a total woman centered existence. And it's a really, we can ask the question of, did she feel this much, um, did she feel this empowered because she lived a woman-centered life? <laughs> mm. Did she, did she feel disempowered? No, she did she feel the- this, sorry, she, this level of empowerment? Like, was she uh-huh. able to do this, to have this much strength and understand her power and uh-huh. feel like she was a person who could say to the people in charge of the town, no, we're going to do this my way because she really lived in a supportive community of women. Mm, yes. So that, wow, that, I mean, that, that speaks volumes of this is what you can do when you live. I mean, <laughs> we, um, we, not that we're going to be going, cutting off the heads of generals, but, um, <laughs> but no, but like but what's the, today's version of cut off the head of the general, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, what grows up what what grows us to feel that strong in a society where women only had a certain very limited um did not have power. Um and so it's it's what it's speaking to is just her action alone is speaking to the to what I'm here understanding you saying is that that she was in her was in a supportive community where she could access that strength. Yes. 
It's so beautiful. Oh! <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting the Judith shivers. <laughs> uh, one year for Hanukkah, I, w- I dressed up as Judith. Uh-huh. And I had a cape, and I had like a kitchen knife like tucked in uh, yeah. to my belt and um and I just felt like and I was going to a Shabbat dinner at a rabbi's house and her birthday falls around Hanukkah on Halloween and she just loves Halloween and so um she's a really uh strong Jewish woman and so I was like I'm gonna show up as Judith and she'll get it <laughs> She'll appreciate it. So I showed up as Judith, and I had a picture of Halifernie's head, like, just cut out that I held. And sometimes we, we, we need a little bit of that infusion into our energy to yeah. give us some strength and courage. I love that idea. <laughs> and as you're thinking about the food stuff also, no one will give this credit, but I guarantee you it was not a man who invented the ritual of this holiday is about oil. Let's celebrate it by making foods cooked in oil. Mm-hmm. Like there's no way mm-hmm. that wasn't like women were in charge mm-hmm. of the kitchen. It had right. to have been. And but like, we don't know who's the woman culinary genius who said, let's celebrate Hanukkah by frying, like cooking food in oil. Right. Right, who is doing like, the cooking? She is unnamed. She is this unnamed woman chef <laughs> who yes. was like, the greatest way for us to connect with oil is to slather our food in it and eat it. Like, yes. the men men came up with light candles and women came up with latke and donuts. Oh, like, <laughs> who won? Like, I don't know who won Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs> We've reached the end of my Hanukkah conversations for now, and here are some reflections and takeaways I'll call sweet notes. One, Hanukkah is rooted in custom, and with custom comes customization. There's room, there seems to be so much room to make it our own. Sweet note two, Judith, or Jewess, or Jewish woman. Wow. Judith is an invitation. She's really this invitation to connect to something powerful in ourselves. And I do have to share a personal piece of this. As we were in editing mode, I, of course, listened over and over again to my conversation with Rabbi Jessica and her retelling of the Judith story. And so imagine this, me in my car driving at 6.15 in the morning, because a side note, I'm a personal chef and I was delivering meals. It was dark, I was driving, I'm listening to this Judith story and how Judith is a Jewess, is a Jewish woman, is every woman. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, Judith is the root of my name, Jody, And I never had any idea or any connection or any awareness of this and I'm like laughing to myself because like 15 years ago or so I actually changed my name to a Hebrew name because I really had this desire to connect to my my roots and here she was all along Judith (laughs) and so I just I, I just I mean it feels so good to feel rooted in Judith and I just had no awareness and and so that's my personal story And I think what we could all maybe take from this is that all we had, all I had to do is ask. All we have to do is ask and and have an inquiry and and a desire to go deeper and look, look what we uncover. It's amazing. Sweet note number three. There's a lot of conversation around authorship and Rabbi Jessica really brings, brings out that point. Somebody wrote the Judith story. The rabbis who were writing down how to celebrate Hanukkah as they themselves were figuring it out themselves. They were essentially writing themselves into the Hanukkah tradition, and it's how we celebrate it today. And so with this authorship theme, it feels like we as women are now really in a position where we can continue that tradition and be authors and write ourselves into the story. 
So those are my sweet note reflections. In our next episode, which is available now, it's the second part of our Hanukkah conversation, we talk more with Rabbi Sarah Tasman about connecting to Hanukkah as a celebration of light and darkness and as a celebration to the new moon. We also talk about the ritual of women's circles. I talk with some other guests about self-care in the wintertime and how self-care can become a Hanukkah ritual in itself. We also talk about connecting to the oil with essential oils. I want to extend big gratitude, a huge thanks to Ethan Bayless, composer, co-producer, and sound engineer, as well as my guests, Rabbi Sarah Tasman and Rabbi Jessica Lott. And to find my two guests, check out my website. You'll find their links on www.redlentilconsulting.com. Until next time, I'm Jody Bayless, and this is Purple Honey. My daughter's three, and so last year was the first time she really started to, like, get Hanukkah, and I think she'll get it even more this year. But also, I, like, really remember the first, when she was a baby, her first Hanukkah, she was, like, five months old, and that's right when babies like start to really notice and get really into light. And it felt mm. so appropriate mm. and huge. And she like all she she would just like she would like glow in the light of the Hanukkah candles. And she just wanted to like sit right next to them as like this five month old. Um, and like she was just totally dazzled by the light of the Hanukkah candles which is the point of the Hanukkah candles is to sort of like be, be wowed oh. and dazzled by them, you know? It was, and it was like, you were seeing like a, a baby version, like a baby version of like what might even be happening inside of, of us, like that newness, totally. like she, but she was just showing it. Mm-hmm.